Um, uh, like I was saying, I, I don't. I probably haven't had the chance to meet many of you, uh, and if I haven't, my name is Jay, and I'm the campus pastor uh, at our West Campus, and uh, it's really, really great to be here. This is, this is a lot of fun. Um, our scripture reading for today, this third Sunday in Advent, comes to us from the prophet Zephaniah, chapter 3, verses 14 through 17. Sing, daughter Zion, shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day they will say to Jerusalem, Do not fear, Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord, your God, is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. This is God's word. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart. That's what the Lord, speaking through his prophet, invites us to do, to Rejoice. But, I mean, seriously, when is the last time that you really rejoiced? If you go ahead and look up the word rejoice in the dictionary, it says that to rejoice means to feel and express great happiness. Well, that explains it then, why we don't rejoice. Because to rejoice is to feel an enormous sense of happiness and well-being at the core of our souls and then to allow ourselves to express it. And the reason we do so little rejoicing, even at Christmas time, is because we're too afraid. Just like the shepherds in the Christmas story, uh, like the old King James says it, the shepherds were sore afraid. So are we. And nothing kills rejoicing quicker than fear. What are we afraid of? Oh, I mean, all kinds of things. We're afraid of what the doctor might say or what the doctor's already said. We're afraid that people we love are going to die or that we're going to die. We're afraid of being broke, of that mountain of medical debt, of not having enough money to retire. We're afraid of mass shootings and terrorism. We're afraid that someone's going to break into our house while we're sleeping. We're afraid that those who see the world way differently than we do are going to take control. We're afraid, we're afraid of uh, whatever the blaze that it is that, that, that's going on in our government at any given time. We're afraid that the, this divisiveness in our country is going to lead to something unthinkable. We're afraid of getting COVID and suffering. We're afraid of suffering from the effects of our government trying to deal with COVID. We're afraid of the choices our loved ones are making. We're afraid of the kind of world that our kids and our grandkids are growing up in. That enough? Oh, we're afraid, all right. So when we sing songs like, 
joy to the world, it gives us a funny feeling deep down in our guts because deep down in those places that we don't like to talk about at Christmas parties, we're afraid that as nice and as sentimental as Christmas is, the reality of the situation is if there's going to be any kind of a Christmas miracle in our lives, the kind that helps us deal with any of the stuff that we're afraid of, then we're going to have to pull it off ourselves. And I'm just going to be real honest that if you and I are responsible for pulling off our own Christmas miracles, well, then we've got good reason to be afraid. 600 years before the first Christmas, the people of Judea were every bit as afraid as we are. In their case, uh, rival empires were threatening to invade and attack and divide up the country and carry the people away. God's chosen people were poor and hungry and weak. Injustice and corruption was everywhere. Times were tough. And their faith turned to false idols. And they lost all hope. Uh, If you take a look, just a couple back chapters back in Zephaniah, you could see there just how hopeless the people were. Uh, Zephaniah tells us that the people sunk so low that they started believing that God was powerless to help them, or worse, that God didn't care. Here's what they said. It's chapter 1, verse 12. The Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. The Lord isn't going to do anything, one way or another, We're on our own down here. Those are some haunting and desperate words. Actually, what they are is these are the words of a practical atheist. You ever heard that before, practical atheist? A practical atheist is someone who believes in God, but lives and thinks and acts like God doesn't exist, like like, like God has decided not to get involved. Just like the people of Israel said, the Lord will do nothing, either good or bad. If you need a miracle, it's all up to you. But here's the thing, that, that if we live our lives like we're on our own down here, well, well, this almost always results in either one of two things. Some of us live recklessly in light of that. You know, we, we, we walk the, the, the path of extreme indulgence or, or self-gratification. You know, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die kind of thing. But most of us don't do that. No, most of us don't recklessly throw our lives to the wind. Most of us choose the other path, the other option. Not living recklessly, but living very, very carefully. So we avoid, <clears throat> we avoid taking risks. We uh, work hard, play by the rules. We color inside the lines that we practical atheists like to keep everything surface level. We don't have the time or, honestly, the energy or patience for mystery or wonder. We just want to do our job. We just want to fulfill our responsibilities, just take care of business, and hope that everything works out. 
problem is that never leads to rejoicing. Practical atheists don't rejoice. Um, I, I came across this quote uh, from a character in, in one of John Updike's novels, and uh, it's been eating at me. And uh, here's the quote. The character said, Westerners, like us, Westerners have lost whole octaves of passion. I think he's right. I think we have. We have lost whole octaves of passion. Most of us do everything we can to avoid the low octaves of suffering and struggle and sadness. And we don't risk the high octaves either. We don't risk reaching too high or for too much. We don't set our hearts on things. We have lost whole octaves of passion. The high and the low. We just try to keep things you know, nice and even and level and under control and right in the middle where... It's more comfortable, or it feels safer. But let me tell you something. When, when you take out the high notes and the low notes, I mean, the music of life gets lame and stale. It's boring. It's predictable. It's monotonous. It's dull. That's, that, that's what living in fear does to us. It dulls us, doesn't it? I mean, when's the last time that you cried yourself to sleep? When's the last time you saw a news story and and you spit your drink out of your mouth and screamed at the TV or your computer or your phone because you were so upset? Or when's the last time you and your spouse closed down a restaurant because you were so into each other that you simply lost track of time? When's the last time you spent your vacation serving the poor in a third world country? When's the last time you were moved by something simple even? Something like a sunset or like the smell of your wife's hair or the feel of your husband's arm around your waist or a baby's smile? When was the last time you rejoiced? And this makes me wonder if there's anything that's more soul-numbing than living too carefully. Because living too carefully is just another way of saying living too fearfully. And more than a few of us have given in to this, this careful, which is to say fearful living. But let me tell you something, God has not. God has not and will not give in to a fearful, dull, monotonous kind of life. And so God spoke through his prophet Zephaniah and said, Do not fear. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. 
You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to live afraid because God is with you. God is intimately involved. And, and, and Zephaniah says that, that not only is the Lord with you, but that he takes such great delight in you that he will rejoice and break out into song over you. And actually, the original text says loud singing over you. He will break out into loud singing. And for 600 years, the people of Israel waited for this prophecy to be fulfilled. They waited for this day to come. And they waited, and they waited, and they waited. And Zephaniah's promise was passed down from generation to generation to generation. For 600 years, grandparents held their grandchildren on their laps and they tell them, listen, sweetheart, someday this darkness is going to be shattered by the glory of the Lord. Someday the Lord will come to us and, and when that great and glorious day comes, my love, the Lord himself will rejoice over us with loud singing. For 600 long, dark, silent years, they waited. And then one night, it happened. On on what seemed like any other long, dark night in Bethlehem, some shepherds were in the fields keeping watch over their flocks by night. When suddenly the sky was ripped wide open. And the angel of the Lord came upon them, and the glory of the Lord shone round about them. And they were sore afraid. And the angel said unto them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you tidings of great joy, which shall be to all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. This long-expected news, this long-expected moment. It was so spectacular, so wonderful. It was so earth-shatteringly joyful that the heavenly host broke out into that loud singing that God had promised all those years ago. They sang glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom God's favor rests. Now, uh, I mean, those shepherds definitely weren't Bible scholars, and there's a pretty good chance that they had no idea that Zephaniah's prophecy was being fulfilled right in front of their eyes. But I'm pretty sure that Luke knew it, because I'm pretty sure that's why he included it in his gospel. But more importantly... God knew it. God was overflowing with such great happiness and delight over us that he rejoiced over us, quite literally rejoiced over us with loud singing. And the reason for this off-the-charts rejoicing, the reason for God's passionate, unrestrained happiness is simply this. Because God was finally with us. 
He came to find us and to save us from our sins and from death and from hell and to bring us back to himself forever, for good. You know, what that means then is that that since God is with us, that means that we aren't alone down here after all. We aren't left to figure it out for ourselves after all. We aren't responsible to come up with our own Christmas miracles after all. God is here with us. God is on the scene. God is involved with us right in the middle of it all. All the high octaves and all the low ones. We are not on our own. So we don't have to keep trying to to save ourselves by, by being so careful and trying to come up with our own miracles. Now that God is here with us, anything can happen. Anything can happen when God is involved. God is with us, and, and that changes everything. Uh, John Shea, a poet, wrote this, um, this really great Christmas poem called Sharon's Christmas Prayer. And the Sharon in the poem is uh, a five-year-old girl, and so the poem is written as if it's being told from the perspective of five-year-old Sharon, uh, as, Sharon as five-year-old Sharon is telling the Christmas story. Here it is. She was five, and sure of the facts, and recited them with slow solemnity, convinced every word was revelation. She said, Mary and Joseph were so poor that they had only peanut butter and jelly sandwiches to eat, and they went a long way from home without getting lost. The lady rode a donkey, and the man walked, and the baby was inside the lady. They had to stay in a stable with an ox and an ass. But the three rich men found them because a star lighted the roof. Shepherds came, and and you could pet the sheep, but you couldn't feed them. And then the baby was born. And do you know who he was? Her quarter eyes inflated to silver dollars. The baby was God. And she jumped in the air, whirled around, dove into the sofa, and buried her head under the cushions which is the only proper response to the good news that God is with us. You know, uh, when, when it comes to Christmas, kids really get it, don't they? I mean, I mean kids know that, that when you look at something that's just so holy and, and special and set apart, or, or, or when you tell the, the, the most embarrassingly special part of the story, the only thing that makes any sense is to, to dive for the couch and bury your head in the cushions. 
And the embarrassingly special part of the Christmas story is that God is so ridiculously happy to find you that he doesn't even mind that you're a practical atheist. God is so incredibly happy to find you that he can't help but rejoice and break out into song. So do you hear it? Do you hear God rejoicing over you with loud singing? Shh, listen. Do you hear God singing? Singing over you? Not because you've done such a great job, not because you've been really careful, not because you've tried so hard, but because in the birth of Jesus Christ, God has found you. Because you and God are together. And now, well, anything can happen. Anything. Anything at all, because God is involved. So go ahead. Go ahead and sing all the notes. The high octaves and the low octaves and everything in between. Go ahead and rejoice. And and just like the prophet Zephaniah said, rejoice with all your heart. Amen. Let's pray.